Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Just a few weeks ago, at the Air and Space Forces Association Air, Space, and Cyber Conference, Air Combat Command Commander General Mark Kelly dropped a truth bomb. He said, quote, by any measure, we have departed the era of conventional overmatch, end quote. Now, what he's saying is that America no longer holds a decisive air power advantage when it comes to our main competitor, China. Let's think about that. America no longer holds a decisive air power advantage when it comes to our main competitor, China. Fielding the oldest, smallest air force in service history has consequences, especially when facing a motivated adversary. And General Kelly didn't make a sweeping statement. He backed it up with facts. He explained the number of fighter squadrons the Air Force can deploy to support combatant commands around the globe is below what's required to meet their operational requirements. He also explained the age of ACC's fighter fleet was nine years old in 1991 for Desert Storm, but it's now 28 years old. And the Air Force pilots are flying just over nine hours a month, which is just one third of the 27 hours per month they were flying at the end of the Cold War. And that's not the worst of it. Global Strike Command leaders could easily detail that over two thirds of the nation's bomber inventory predates the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Air Mobility Command could talk about flying Eisenhower era tankers well into the next decade. Bottom line, the global threat environment is surging, but America's Air Force is on its skids and it's bad. You've heard us talk about this before on the Aerospace Advantage because it is such a crucial topic. If we lack credible air power, we will struggle to deter aggressors and we will fail to win wars. This sort of weakness has dire consequences measured in the terms of lives. Okay, so the Dean of the Mitchell Institute, Lieutenant General David Deptula, and our Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments, Mark Gunzinger, recently released a report digging into what's driving the situation. So General Deptula and Gonzo, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Great to be here. It's like... Now, I'm really, really excited to introduce a longtime mentor, friend, and former commander of mine, Lieutenant General Joe Guastella, who just retired from the Air Force as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations. He is now our newest Mitchell team member, which is absolutely awesome. Sir, thanks for being here, and I can't thank you enough for joining the Mitchell team. Slick, thank you. And it is really good to be part of Mitchell. And uh, hopefully we're going to drop some truth bombs today, maybe even open up with the truth gun and talk about America's Air Force, because to our listeners, I think they're going to want to hear it. And I'm really excited to be part of this team. Okay, gentlemen, I laid it out pretty directly in my opener on how bad things are. General Kelly wasn't pulling his punches, and I think we owe him a lot for being so direct. We can't fix a problem unless we acknowledge it. And let's be honest, that takes a lot of guts, given that there is a lot of pressure by some top leaders outside the Air Force who say, all is well, there's nothing to see here. 
to really help folks understand what's at stake, let's go around the table. What was the state of the Air Force when you all joined and how do you contrast that with what's confronting airmen today? So General Deptula, let's get started with you. Okay, I didn't know you wanted to go back that far, but I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll jump in here. I was commissioned in 1974. But three months before my commissioning, I went to University of Virginia, ROTC. And just before commissioning, we were told that there'd be a one-year delay for the pilot candidates to go to flight school as a result of the Air Force having too many pilots in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War. So I applied and got an educational delay, got my master's degree before finally getting called to active duty in 1977. And just as a sidebar, out of 10 pilot candidates in my ROTC graduating class, I was the only one who finally went to pilot training because the Air Force was offering so many incentives to all pilot candidates not to come on active duty. I mean, you know, I got a, a full four-year scholarship ride, and they said, hey, look, we'll absolve you of all your commitment, you know, if you just sign this letter here. And no, I wanted to go fly, so... Bottom line, I was in the second or third, I think it was probably third class of undergraduate pilot training graduates to get assigned an F-15A right out of UPT. Uh, and in my first operational F-15 squadron, there was a guy by the name of Captain Buzz Mosley and Captain Tom Hobbins and a bunch of other folks, but I won't bore you all with all the names, but we flew our butts off. And I was averaging 250 flight hours a year getting my 1,000-hour patch in the F-15 and my fourth year flying while I was going through fighter weapons school. As a matter of fact, I remember the sortie. It was my AIM-7 live launch sortie off the coast of Point Magoo, California. Readiness was high, training was superb, and the size of the force was so high that, as I mentioned, the Air Force was trying to get rid of pilots to right-size to a modernized fighter force of then new F-15s, F-16s, and A-10s. Now, this is the opposite of today, where we now suffer from decades of neglect that's resulted in the oldest, smallest, and least ready Air Force in our 75 years history, and continuing to face a significant deficit in terms of pilots and facing a situation, and, and this is where it really hurts. It's not getting new pilots. It's not being able to retain its combat-capable fighter pilots that we have. Just as an indicator, this year alone, 34%, only 34% of those fighter pilots eligible opted to accept the pilot bonus to stay in the service. So that's kind of a compare and contrast from my days early on to where we are today. All right, Gonzo, you want to hop in? Yeah, you bet. So I actually joined the Air Force in 1972, so I've got you beat by a couple wow, years. Wow, I didn't know you were that much of an old fart, Gonzo. Oh, thanks, boss. Uh, yeah, prior enlisted by commission in 77, so you got me there. All right. So I started my operational life flying B-52s and pulling nuclear alert every third week in the Strategic Air Command. Just before I left the operational force to go to Air Command Staff College, our nation had 411 total bombers on the ramp. That was at the end of the Cold War. And that force did great work in Desert Storm, dropping about 30% by tonnage of all U.S. munitions used to attack targets by air. But by 1999, in a space of 10 years, that force had been cut by 40%. And today, the Air Force has 141 total bombers. 
and only 20 of those bombers are stealthy B-2s that can operate in the kinds of highly contested environments that we're going to see in a fight with China or, or even Russia. As, and as stark as that picture is, let me hammer home something else that you mentioned earlier, Slick. You know, all too often we hear senior DOD leaders testify that Congress said, we have the best Air Force in the world. And without question, we have the best airmen and the best air women in the world, but without enough training, without enough jets, without enough munitions, without enough logistical support, they are not going to beat the PLA in a fight that takes place in China's backyard. That's what Congress needs to hear. And to his credit, Secretary Kendall recently said that we still have the best military in the world until we get within about a thousand miles of China's coastline, and then we don't. And that distance is growing every year. Boom. And there you have it. And from my perspective, Slick, when I joined as a lieutenant, I was lucky enough to get an F-16 out of pilot training, my first choice, and of course, the best fighter you could get out of pilot training during the height of the Cold War. And just like General Deptula said, we flew our butts off. We trained hard. We, we had brand new iron. And we had what General Kelly from Air Combat Command stated. We had a conventional overmatch. We had the technology. We didn't have a quantitative advantage, but we had a qualitative advantage and we had a training advantage. You know, and but... But check this out. I was the squadron CELO, the Stanaval liaison officer. I was the snacko, of course, as a lieutenant, but I was also the CELO. And what did I have on my desk? I had a typewriter where my job was to type out four mates. And you know what was sitting on the ramp back then in 1989 was aircraft tail 464. And guess what? Here we are 35 years later and aircraft 464 is still out there, small mouth block 30 with a Tulsa guard. And now we have iPhone 14s. Okay, so if we had to fight a cyber war with a typewriter, how would we do? But we're going to fight America's war with 464? It's a great jet but it's not gonna do it in a high-end fight. So Houston, we have a problem, or should I say Washington, we have a problem, or should I say maybe, hey, third floor of the Pentagon, DOD, we have a problem, and we need to get after, we need to get the word out, and we need to get after it. I'm about 12 years after you, Gus, you know, showing up with you at Aviano in 2002, and just a little bit to add there, when I was lieutenant, we flew our butts off still compared to what we're doing today. And I know we're going to get to that here in just a second. But, you know, General Gosella, you were the deputy chief of staff for operations up until just a few months ago. And you were the leader tasked with trying to stretch the force really to meet all of the various demands facing it from commanders around the globe. So can you walk us through what you saw on a routine basis? You know, what they said is spot on. We have to understand the Air Force's budget, what's really there and what's not there. And then we have to actually look at the demands on our force. Like, you know what I saw when I was in the building? I saw more meetings for global force management about the Air Force and its inability to cover down on all the demands from the combatant commands by order of magnitude more than the other services. It's almost like a tennis match where it would be combatant command saying, I need more air power. And all the, and the Army and the Marine and the Navy would turn their heads, look at the Air Force, and we'd have to answer, well, we don't have it available. And it'd go back to the COCOM, well, I need this, I need what you, I need combat power, I need air power. And all the other, it's like, it's like a tennis match going back and forth between the combatant commands and the one service that's not delivering on capacity, and that's the Air Force. That's what I saw for my two years there. So what that tells all of us is that 
the Air Force is in demand. And I don't have to state it. You can just ask the Joint Force. It's our fighters. It's our bombers in demand. It's our our rescue elements, it's our ISR that's in demand, it's our AWACS, our air battle managers, and always it's our agile combat support, those incredible airmen that fight the airfield, that generate the air power. Air Force is in demand. That's what I saw when I was there as the A3. Yeah, well, uh, sir, of course, you always hit it right on the head there. So, Gonzo, this leads us to the crux of the report that you wrote with General Deptula. And bottom line, I got to ask, how did things fall off so badly? How did this train get off the tracks? I mean, the Air Force that fought and won Desert Storm is not the service we've got today, right? So what happened? Yeah, three quick points. First, DD began a whole series of major force cuts uh, in the early 90s that were driven in part by the reduced threat to our national security after the Soviet Union failed, and because of the desire to reduce defense spending to realize a so-called peace dividend. Now, my first point is this series of cuts never really stopped, and the Air Force absorbed more cuts in the late 90s and the 2000s, and let's not forget the infamous 2009 CAF Redux, where the Air Force proposed retiring 250 fighters in response to SecDef guidance only to see much of the $3.5 billion in promised savings just absolutely evaporate as a result of budget sequesters that kicked in as a result of the uh, Budget Control Act of 2011. And what the three of us heard in the 1990s, like the need to trade force capacity for new capabilities, are the exact same arguments we are hearing today. Only the Air Force, by now, has already traded off any excess capacity it once had. Second, those force cuts were accompanied by decisions to terminate multiple programs for next-gen capabilities that are now needed to deter China. And because of SecDef decisions, the Air Force was only able to buy 189 of its required 381 stealthy F-22 air security fighters, 21 of its 132 stealthy B-2 bombers it needed, and and it also canceled replacement of the Minuteman 3 Force and other modernization programs. Now, of course, all the services absorb some budget-driven cuts to their forces and modernization plans. But my third point is the Air Force took the biggest hits in that period of time because its annual budgets were less than the Army and Navy's over the last 30 years. So this is why our Air Force now has the wrong force design or the unprecedented array of threats it is asked every day to contend with. Yeah, Gonzo, I, I do appreciate that. And it's it's always crazy to, to take a, a historic look back and and think about the, the cuts. You know, when you hear the numbers with the Raptor, it's one of those things that just drives me insane. I wish we could do something about it, but I think we've just got to keep educating people on how we got to where we are. But General Deptula, there's another key factor here. And I know we've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's really important. And that is the pass-through. So can you please bring folks up to speed on how that makes every that Gonjo just described so much worse? Yeah, sure, Slick. In the Department of Defense budget request for fiscal year 2023, which, by the way, we're in now, it started the 1st of October, multiple analyses, publications, and reports incorrectly use its reported service top lines, not realizing what those top lines include. According to the overall DOD, 
FY23 budget release and the briefing by the comptroller that he's given multiple times, you might think that the Air Force is the best funded of the Army, Navy, and Air Force services because that's the way it appears in terms of total dollars shown that each service is getting. But you would be wrong to believe what the Pentagon budget briefing reports. In fact, the Pentagon allocated the least real budget authority to the Air Force relative to the Army and the Navy as services and all the other defense agencies as a group. Here's why. The Air Force budget is burdened by over $40 billion in non-Air Force spending over which the Secretary and Chief of Staff of the Air Force have absolutely no control. These funds, which account for over 19% of the total Air Force budget, go directly to other DOD agencies passing through the Air Force untouched. That's why it's called pass-through. Now, this pass-through budget practice, I would tell you, is the single biggest threat to the modernization of our Air Force which, as I said earlier, is now the oldest, smallest, and the least ready in its history. This decades-old pretense may have been justifiable at one time, like back in the 1960s, but today it simply creates the false impression that the Air Force is getting funds commensurate with the Army and the Navy, and it is not, and has not for 30 years. Over the past three decades, in addition, some three-quarters of a trillion dollars buried in the Air Force budget has actually funded other defense-wide agencies. So in truth, the Air Force budget does not rank number one as it's deceptively reported in the DOD budget, but number four behind the Army, the Navy, and other DOD agencies. To allow for transparency for decision makers to better understand the fiscal predicament facing all the services, the pass-through must be removed from the Air Force budget and placed with defense-wide spending where it actually belongs. The pass-through leads to inaccurate assumptions that have resulted in the Air Force being chronically underfunded for decades. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Air Force has been funded last relative to the Army and the Navy for 30 years in a row. And guess what? That last place position is repeated in the FY23 budget. Okay, so I hope that gets it across. And just as a reference point, the youngest B-52, the mainstay of the U.S. Bomber Force, the youngest one is over 60 years old today. And I could go on, but I won't. Yeah, sir. Again, I think that's just the funding piece is the big takeaway. And it's not fun to talk about. It's not sexy to talk about. So that's probably why it doesn't get a whole lot of a highlight. But that's what we've got to fix. And General Guasella, I know the Air Force has really been in a tough spot, especially given the financial factors that General Deptula and Gonzo just explained. The service has been forced to pursue a modernization strategy that's been called, quote, divest to invest. So from your experience, can you walk us through what that means? and whether or not it's, it's helped grow the capacity that we need? 
Hey, uh, Slick, if I could, can I, before I answer the, the question you asked me, can I pitch back in on, on Zaytar's previous point about the, the pass-through? Absolutely, boss. Please do. Uh, excellent. So, yeah, so the, the, the purpose of the Department of the Air Force is to organize, train, and equip an Air Force and a Space Force. And they're given a top-line money to do that with. But when you, when you have $40 billion in that top line that doesn't go towards any combat power in the Air Force or Space Force, it absolutely tells a wrong story. That money that's passing through to other Department of Defense agencies is going elsewhere. But you know what? Why not put it where all the other DOD money is, is held? Okay, in the Department of Defense budget, what we what the programmers call fourth estate. It's not in the Air Force. It's not in the Department of the Navy, and it's not in the Department of the Army. It's fourth estate. There's a lot of things in the fourth estate. Missile Defense Agency, for example, is fourth estate. A lot of things. Chem Gear, for example, equips all of the force. A lot of things that aren't sexy, but they're there and they're captured in that. That's a significant part of the budget. That's where pass-through should belong and not tell the wrong story of what it does inside the Department of the Air Force because it's not buying combat power for our airmen or our guardians. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that clarification. So just to bring the audience back, the question was talking about divest to invest. So can you walk us through how that's working out? Yeah, that's well, it, it was a great plan right up to the point where we overshot. There was a time where we had excessive force structure, certainly in the fighter area. There was, you know, at the tail end of the Cold War, it, arguably the volume of fighter force structure that we had was acceptable to take that down. And we divested that. But as Gonzo said, we didn't realize a lot of that money. And secondly, you know what we did with a lot of it? We bought a massive fleet of ISR aircraft, it, it, you know, it, it, reconnaissance aircraft, unmanned reconnaissance, drones, if you will, to go and employ in the Middle East. That's what that massive divestiture of fighter force structure did buy for us. Now, they, they played an important role. There's, there's no doubt about it. But what did that leave us with? It brought us down to the bare minimum of fighter, bomber, airlift, and other force structure that we need to, to fight our nation's wars. And as a result, we can't go any deeper in that area. So if there's a plan to fund the much needed modernization slick by continuing divestiture, it's not gonna work. We are already at the limit. Listen to what General Kelly said. We don't have enough fighter squadrons today so if they're going to continue to chew up force structure, continue to divest fighter squadrons for modernization, we're not going to be able to succeed and fight our nation's wars. Yeah, and thanks for that. We haven't even talked fighter bathtub in probably you know 10 years or so with the fielding of F-35, but I mean, we know how abysmal that looked on the chart. All right, so General Deptula, you've worked on National Defense Reviews going back to the Base Force in 1989, the Bottom-Up Review in 93, the National Defense Panel in 97, and the various quadrillennial defense reviews, including directing the 2001 QDR where Gonzo joined you. And these were all supposed to align uh, ends, ways, and means. So I've got to ask this, did leaders intend for this to happen? I mean, was the Air Force, was the service supposed to get this small? Uh, Slick, the bottom line up front is, an unqualified no, but risks compounded on risks and poor decisions on the part of several secretaries of defense and their staffs led to the situation we find ourselves today. You already mentioned one name, and that's Secretary Gates, his disastrous decision to cancel the F-22 just when it was being produced at the lowest cost per aircraft with zero defects, 
was not only strategically, but economically catastrophic and extraordinarily short-sighted. It was premised on his assessment that we didn't need it in Iraq and Afghanistan. And oh, by the way, we didn't need nuclear attack uh, submarines at the time either, but we kept buying them. And his presumption that China would not be a threat, as well as a robust and timely F-35 buy, these critical assumptions were flat out wrong. Now, also, the Air Force and the Office of Secretary of Defense didn't anticipate flying the B-1 in two decades worth of nonstop combat deployments. They bought into the foolish notion of divest to invest, I'll just call it what it is, not recognizing that the money that they divest in one year is not tagged to come back to the Air Force in later years. It goes into the U.S. Treasury and it has to be justified all over again. So, for example, they didn't anticipate the CAF redux money disappearing as a result of the Budget Control Act of 2011. The bottom line is key assumptions didn't play out, and now the margins for error are gone. So let me uh, quickly add to that by putting my force planner hat on and listing a number of DOD assumptions that rationalize its force structure decisions. DOD could cut its bomber force by 40% after the Cold War because fighters could quickly deploy to theater air bases and provide the precision strike mass needed to defeat lesser militaries of Iran and North Korea. And it didn't need to allocate more resources toward defending those theater bases because enemies lack capabilities to attack them at scale. And it didn't need more than a silver bullet force to be twos because there's not a threat out there that required more stealth. And it didn't need a larger F-22 force since DD would soon be buying F-35As at a rate of up to 110 per year, which didn't happen. And it could continue to upgrade existing aircraft instead of replacing them with next-gen capabilities, which is exactly what OMB said after Secretary Gates canceled the next-gen bomber back in 2009. My point is, all of those assumptions are nearsighted and a big part of the reason for why our Air Force is now too small and too old. Yeah, Gonzo, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I know we're talking a lot about the hardware, which is absolutely important because at the end of the day, you know, the capacity needs to be there. But General Guisela, I, I know uh, it's no surprise to you that training is obviously massively important as well. And back in the day, you know, U.S. commanders would brag about how many more flight hours U.S. pilots got versus their adversaries, places like the Soviet Union. And, you know, going back to our time at the nickel, thinking about North Korea, those guys flying 10 hours a month, we're like, God, we're flying that almost in a week per pilot, right? And now we're down to those hours that our old opponents were, were flying at. So how is this impacting the force? And that was a major component of what General Kelly was cited in during his speech. You know, Slick, what, what you're talking about there, that the training, the term we use for that in the Pentagon is our readiness, right? What is readiness? Well, readiness is the flying hours that our crews get, our maintainer, they're, they're our maintainers, their ability to generate aircraft, to turn them, fix them, get them back up in the air, fly and fix airplanes. That's the cornerstone of readiness. And also for the air crews to fly in realistic scenarios that get you up and ready for the pier fight. 
So we're lacking in every single aspect of that. We don't have sufficient flying hours. Our maintenance or maintainers are trying to fix airplanes that are 30 years old because there's no way they can generate the sortie rates they, they did 10 or 20 years ago. And we don't have an ability to fly in those high-end scenarios that we need because we're over-consumed. You know, the 20 years of deployments to the Middle East, those are not readiness-increasing deployments for the Air Force. We did it a critical role. We did some phenomenal work. But we flew the life out of our airplanes, and we lost valuable training opportunities as well. And we're still doing that today. Do you know, Slick, that today the Chinese fifth-gen pilots fly more hours per month than our F-35 and F-22 pilots do? Can you believe that? It's crazy. I can't believe it, but I guess it's happening. But but that's the point of this podcast, right? We've got to get fired up and let people know that we're getting outpaced by the Chinese. You're absolutely right. You know, it's like this is what's scary to me. You know, we have lost the the you know, we, we don't have the quantitative edge, especially in the away game and an overseas fight. OK, and we're we're at the verge of losing our qualitative edge. And the Air Force knows that because they desperately need to modernize. But, you know, now we're also at the verge of losing that last bastion of being an American service member, which is the phenomenal training we've always given them. When we don't fly them enough, when we aren't able to fix them, and we aren't able to put them in high-end high end scenarios, then we're going to lose that last piece of it. And that spells disaster if we don't get after this like. Yes, sir. I could not agree more, which is why it's so great having you on the team to, to carry the message. Now, Gonzo, you actually went through and calculated some of the force structure stats that they were just sobering. You looked at fighters and bombers, what we have in theory and, you know, really what's available to commanders in actuality. And you did this in snapshots in 1989, 99 and 2022. So walk us through that. Sure. Let's start with fighters. So the Air Force had over 4,300 total fighters in 1989. About 40% of those are gone in 10 years. Today, we've got about 2,204, of which a little over 1,400 are actually assigned to combat squadrons after subtracting test training and other aircraft. And then if you factor in their mission-capable race, that leaves about 975 fighters that are ready to meet global taskings. And the vast majority of those would have to deploy to a fight with China. So how are you going to make up the difference? Are we going to strip the U.S. homeland from fighters defending our skies? I don't think so. Are we going to pull all our fighters out of South Korea to deploy to fight China? Sorry, South Korea. Or how about pulling them all out of Europe? Well, sorry, NATO. That's just not feasible. Same story for bombers. 411 in 1989, 228 in 1999, 141 today. And that boils down to 59 bombers after subtracting test training, backup aircraft, and uh, applying mission-capable rates. That doesn't equate to sorties. If you fly a sortie from Guam to the South China Sea and back, you're going to get about six-tenths of a sortie per day out of those 59 bombers. So that's maybe 35 sorties per day. And that's our entire force. Let's not forget nuclear deterrence. Nuclear-capable B-52s and B-2s are going to be, a number of them be withheld, to stay back in the homeland to deter nuclear attacks against the U.S., which is a pretty good idea if you're fighting a nuclear-capable peer adversary. So that would drive the sortie rate even further down the pole. 
Yeah, again, sobering for all of this. And, you know, at the end, if we look at this year's budget, we see the ultimate impacts of all of this. So General Deptula, can you give us your thoughts on this budget? Yeah, sure, Slick. Regardless of the points uh, that I made earlier about, well, all of us made about divest to invest being literally a bankrupt strategy, as it's never worked when applied in the past, the Air Force is doing it again. Unfortunately, the Air Force has many more mission demands than the resources it's been allocated to accomplish. So aircraft providing critical capabilities to our nation, like the B-1, like the AWACS, they're being divested well ahead of replacements in the form of the B-21 and the E-7. Other airplanes are literally failing due to age, and replacements are simply not keeping up with the backfill needs. And as Gus said earlier, this situation represents a huge risk, and it also portends human capital problems. For example, how does the Air Force plan to keep its pilots, maintainers, and the support infrastructure, like depots, online during the gap? Now, without a defense-wide approach to evaluate defense capabilities relative to meeting the needs of our strategy, the Air Force and to a degree the other services are obliged to do the only thing that they can do, and that's to accept significant risk in the near term by retiring current force structure to free up funds to invest in the necessary future force capabilities. I mean, this is, this is the problem that they face. And here's the impact. Take a look at the current 2023 Future Years Defense Plan. In it, the Air Force is planning to divest, to be exact, 1,463 aircraft, while over the same period only buying 467. To do the math for you, that means it's decreasing its force by 996 airplanes. That's about a 25% force structure reduction to a service that was already evaluated as weak in a recent annual military assessment of the U.S. Armed Forces. And it makes it 25% smaller than its current stature of being the smallest, the oldest, and the least ready in our history. You know, Zaytar, can I pitch in really quick? You know, if, if that actually happens and we do reduce that force structure, what are we gonna? What are we going to tell those customers that are already not getting enough air power? Which combatant command are we gonna short even more this time around in the next budget? In other words, these problems that we see today with capacity of our air force are gonna get nothing but worse. And what you're gonna hear from those combatant commanders is more and more advocacy for air power, and there's gonna be no well to go to. Great point, Gus. Really good points. And it's important to remind our audience that the customers are the combatant commanders. So which one do you short? CENTCOM, UCOM with the Russians, Indo-PACOM with the Chinese? Here's the deal, which kind of goes back to one of the previous reports that Gonzo wrote about, and that's the context that, you know, we can force size the Navy for the Pacific fight because that's where they'll be spending most of their time. The Army for a European fight, because that's where they're the most relevant. But the Air Force needs to be force-sized for both the Pacific and the European fights. And the homeland fight. There you go. Don't forget the most important AOR is America. And we defend 
this nation every single day. And so the Air Force covers the globe. And right now, we're, it, it's going uncovered with the state of this force. Yep. Yeah. Again, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you should be really fired up because the other part is, and Gus, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the homeland, but and we say it often on the podcast, but guess what? The enemy has a vote as well. I don't think China's Air Force is getting any smaller by the day. In fact, you know, we'll obviously make sure we stay uh, unclassified here, but I think they're ramping up what they're doing, right? If they're flying, if their fifth gen pilots are flying more than hours, well, what are they training for? So I think we've really laid out the problem set here and I appreciate everybody doing so. And Gonzo, I know that you understand the problem. I've got to ask you, what do we do about this? I understand you've got several recommendations on how we deal with this. So what are they? Yeah, two cookies. First of all, DD should stop its deceitful practice of reporting to Congress and the American people if the Air Force now receives a larger budget than the Army and Navy. That means reporting that $40 billion in pass-through that General Tula talked about is part of other DD non-service spending. Now, keep the same pipelines if necessary, just report it accurately. And second, the Air Force now needs more capacity as well as new capabilities, and that means it needs our budget. We recommend growing the Air Force's budget by 3 to 5% a year over inflation and for a decade or more. That's the minimum to halt its slide toward a hollow force and to begin to fill the hole that's been created by 30 years of a modernization holiday. Yeah, I like that you're clear and concise. So now we know that there's one pie out there and it's got to get divvied up. So General Japtula, your report suggests that it's time to start reallocating money between the services. So what's involved with doing that? Well, I think it's important to identify where that 3 to 5% came from. Since the 2018 congressionally appointed bipartisan National Defense Strategy Commission, they, as well as other American defense leaders, have repeatedly stated meeting those goals is going to require that 3 to 5% real growth per year throughout much of the 2020s. The 2023 proposed president's budget does not meet that target. In fact, when inflation is considered, the 2023 defense funding is down between 3 to 5% real growth compared to last year's. It's not up. I think the National Defense Strategy Commission explained today's circumstances really well when it concluded that America is very near the point of strategic insolvency, where its means are badly out of alignment with its ends. Given the alarming threats posed by China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, this danger is very real, which reminds me, the North Koreans just launched a couple of intercontinental ballistic missiles over Japan. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is threatening the use of nuclear weapons, China's increasing its production, and Iran is not sitting still either. Now, what I'd suggest is we've got four plausible alternatives for resolving this discrepancy. One, we can significantly increase the defense budget. Pragmatically, that's not likely. Two, we can lower the expectations of the defense strategy. That's not going to happen either. Three, we can accept the growing strategy resource mismatch, like we've been doing for the last 30 years, but today that's potentially disastrous. Or four, we can start evaluating defense capabilities and investing in terms of the desired effects they contribute to meeting the needs of our defense strategy. 
Like I said, options one and two are pragmatically and politically unrealistic. Three is just untenable. And so four, while it's difficult, is entirely feasible. With this growing defense strategy resource mismatch, along with little current administration or congressional support to resolve that mismatch by increasing the defense budget, the time is past for, it's well past due for an open and honest roles and missions review of the armed forces. And the last serious attempt to do this was done in 94-95 during the, or with the Commission on Roles and Missions. Such a review today could be used to elevate our current and projected defense capabilities in terms of the practical effects that contribute to meeting the needs of our strategy. It could then recommend shifts inside the Department of Defense to optimize our capabilities given that the current defense budget allocations are disconnected from the defense strategy. I, in, in, implicit in this plea, if you will, because I dare say it's not gonna happen because none of the services except the Air Force want it to happen, not all defense programs offer equal combat value. Too often a service is forced to reduce a highly effective existing capability in order to free up funding to achieve a needed future capability in its service only to see less effective programs with similar missions survive in another service. You know, I'm reminded here of the retirement of B-1s, but still we're keeping all our large deck aircraft carriers when a B-1 can deliver the equivalent force capacity of an entire carrier battle group in a day. I know the Navy's gonna get all upset, but the point is, and I'm not arguing for no aircraft carriers, I'm, I'm arguing for an honest look at the trade-offs between capabilities. Yeah, I get it. We need 4.2 square acres of sovereign U.S. territory to float around and influence presence. But guess what? An adversary, when they get hit on the head with a thousand pound bomb, do not know, nor do they care whether the bomber came from the United States or from off the deck of an aircraft carrier. So considering the dangers posed by growing threats, the Department of Defense can no longer afford to continue its disjointed investment prioritization and parochial force management. The best way to ensure our defense priorities are optimized is to look beyond budget allocation from a service-centric perspective and consider how the American defense posture as a whole can best achieve our strategy objectives using a cost-per-effect approach. Well, sir, yeah, of course, I could not agree more there. I mean, I won't belabor the point, but the report did also mention some pointed modernization priorities. So do you guys want to hop in on that? Yeah, let me uh, throw out a couple. First and foremost, take advantage of programs that are already delivering capabilities that are needed to deter or, if necessary, fight China. Now, by that, I mean increased procurement of next-gen munitions as quickly as possible to fill stocks that are already short of what's needed. Increase F-35 procurement for the Air Force, 80 per year, like the Air Force originally planned. This year, the Air Force is asked for 33 F-35s, again, for the same old reason, not enough budget. Also, don't take money out of modernization programs that are about to begin delivering new capabilities, like the B-21 program. B-21s are America's China deterrence bomber because they're a long range of survivability and payload capacity, exactly 
what's needed to blunt a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And we all know that DoD's budgeteers are always tempted just to slice off a, a few hundred million here, or maybe a billion there off programs like the B-21 because that's where the money is, not because of a lack of requirements. And finally, keep nuclear modernization on track because the Air Force's two legs of the nuclear triad must now deter a China that is seeking nuclear parity with the U.S. as well as Russia. Yeah, thanks, Gonzo. I just want to quickly, uh, as we, we start getting tight on time here, as we always do, General Costello, you have the most recent currency inside the building out of any of us. And I don't know to say congratulations or I'm sorry, but you know, you can't speak for the Air Force anymore. But given your own personal take, what do you think about what General Deptula and Gonzo just proposed? They are spot on. You know, I've heard the leadership of the Air Force say it's all about China, China, China. Well, you know what, if as opposed to searching for some war winning technology, that we're going to try to deliver. I have a response. How about F-35, 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 F-15EX, 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 B-21, nuclear modernization, high-end ISR, E-7. We already have many of the war-winning tools available if they purchased in sufficient quantity. And that means top line for the Air Force. Tell the story, remove the pass-through, tell the story, and then fund the service that's in demand. Absolutely. You know, air power underpins every aspect of the joint fight, whether it's the lower-end counterterrorism type of fight, whether it's violent extremist organizations that we successfully defeated, the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda organizations, whether it's deterring a peer competitor, or whether it's a full-on two-and-a-half legs of the triad, that's the Air Force. Okay, and it's there's no fight that doesn't involve the U.S. Air Force. Let's fund the force commensurate with what's being asked of it. Well, General Deptula, I want to tackle another part of this equation. And, you know, the Air Force, you know, we've been, we're kind of being down right now, but we need to be. I don't want to take the focus off of that. But the Air Force should be commended for its efforts to push hard with innovation and new design types. I mean, you know, Mitchell's a huge fan of the next gen things like the collaborative combat aircraft, which is just a new buzzword for the next gen UAV and JADC2. But we also need basic iron on the ramp now. And we had General John Corley, who served as the vice chief of staff of the Air Force and Air Combat Command on one of the very first podcasts. And he had a crucial insight. He said, and I'll quote him here, if it's always about program next, you'll never have a program at all. So what did he mean to say and why is that so important given what we're talking about here today? Yeah, I know I'm happy to address that. John's a great friend. And what it means is that we must actually buy what we innovate. The 2020s were the decade to buy. Uh, and the Air Force is now punting on that rather than making the case that it simply cannot do what the nation's asking it to do with the resources it's been allocated. Now, the current administration doesn't want to spend any more on defense, and therefore the political appointees in the Pentagon are not advocating for more resources. Pragmatically, that means key missions are going to atrophy for want of viable equipment. The Air Force should be advocating for a minimum of 72 fighters per year just to maintain the current average age, but only ask for 56 in 2023. As both Gus and, and Gonzo have stated, it needs to be fighting for more F-35s, more B-21s, KC-46s, T-7s, Sentinels, and so on and so forth. Innovation is important, but so is iron on the ramp when you need it. Waiting for the perfect is foolish. Never going to have perfect. For example, 
The Air Force wanted to wait for the F-35 TR Block 4 to roll off the production line instead of buying the F-35s now that are capable of retrofit and retrofitting them after they get them on board. So now we're going to have to have fewer of that critical fighter when we need them in the 2027 time frame. I'd rather go to war in a F-35 of any configuration than F-16 tail number 464. But right now, if the balloon went up, that would fight. That's a, that, Houston, we have a problem. Bingo. Agreed. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. We've obviously uh, gone over time here, but it's been super important. So I just want to say thanks to each of you for being here. Thank you, Slick. Hey, thanks, Slick. Till next time. Yeah, nice job, Slick. See ya. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.